Hey listeners, welcome to Season 2 of Rewrite Radio. We're back with more treasures from the Festival of Faith and Writings archive, and some exciting changes too. I'm Ali Crevier, and while I'm not the new host of Rewrite Radio, I'm today's host. In fact, this season we want to highlight the many voices involved in every festival, so each episode will be hosted by a different person. We've got some amazing recordings this season, and we wanted to get out of their way. So there won't be any preliminary interviews, just simple introductions to the festival session you'll hear. And now, Season 2 of Rewrite Radio. Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Up today, creating cultural sanctuaries for young people, the power of words and the art of improvisation and revision. This is Rewrite Radio. You are here. This This is Rewrite Radio. Radio, A a podcast from the This is Rewrite Radio. (laughs) This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Ali Crevier, and I'm a student fellow at the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. On today's episode, you'll hear the poet and performance artist Billy Mark Engage Nate Marshall and Kwame Alexander in both poetry and in a conversation about how art shapes communities and amplifies story and beauty in order to empower young people. Nate Marshall is the director of national programs for the Louder Than a Bomb Youth Poetry Festival. He has won the Gwendolyn Brooks Open Mic Award, and his first book, Wild Hundreds, won the Agnes Lynch Starrett Prize. He has received fellowships from Cave Canham, the Poetry Foundation, and the University of Michigan. Marshall has also released a rap album, Grown, and edited The Breakbeat Poets, New American Poetry in the Age of Hip Hop. A poetry editor for Kinsfolk Quarterly, Marshall's own work has appeared in journals including Poetry, Indiana Review, and The New Republic. Marshall has worked with organizations such as Young Chicago Authors, Inside Out Literary Arts Project in Detroit, and Southern Word in Nashville. He is the founder of the Lost Count Scholarship Fund and a founding member of the poetry collective Dark Noise. Kwame Alexander is an educator and author of 24 books, including the 2015 Newbery Award-winning novel The Crossover. In 2017, he earned a nomination for the NAACP Image Award for his young adult novel Solo and became the inaugural recipient of the Pat Conroy Legacy Award. Alexander has also received the Coretta Scott King Author Award Honor, the NCTE Charlotte Huck Honor, the Lee Bennett Hopkins Poetry Award, and the Patterson Poetry Prize. His other works include The Playbook, 52 Rules to Help You Aim, Shoot, and Score in This Game of Life, Animal Arc, Booked, He Said, She Said, and Rebound, the forthcoming prequel to the crossover. And now... Billy Mark talking with Kwame Alexander and Nate Marshall at the 2018 Festival of Faith and Writing. Uh, so we were just about to walk up and uh, come out here, and uh, Kwame had a great idea. He's like, maybe we should, we're all poets here, maybe we should 
do some poetry, some, some poetry. Does that sound like a good idea to you guys? Oh, no. Oh, what's that? <laughs> uh, you, you guys, you guys want to do this? I mean, since it was my idea, I should go last. Okay. <laughs> wow. Is that how that works? I, I did my part. Okay. okay. All right. Um, cool. So Excellent. we're having basically a little mini poetry slam. Yes. And you all will decide who the winner is. Ooh. <laughs> oh, <And> no. <laughs> Golly. I, I quit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, it's, I, not I, it's not about the points. It's not about the points. It's not about the points. It's about the poetry. Truly. All right. Um, I'll read. You're the judge. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, uh, I'll read this. This is a uh, this poem is called Finna. Uh, Finna, Finna is my favorite word, um, and I'm finna read y'all this poem. So you'll see. <laughs> so this one time I was finna say Finna in an academic context, and a voice in my head said, "Shouldn't you be worried about using a word that ain't a word?" And I was like, "Word." <laughs> and for a long time, that was how I let my life happen. I let my mind tell me a million no's that the world had implanted in me before I even formed questions. I let my power be dulled by my fear of fitting. But I remember a million finnas I avoided to get here. Like the day them dudes jumped me off the bus and I was finna get stomped out like a loose square. Or the day they got to shooting at the park and I was finna catch one like an alley-oop. Or the day my grandma died and my grades dropped and I was finna not finish high school except I had a praying mama and good teachers and poems to write. I'm thankful for all these finnas that never were. And when I remind myself of who I've always been, I remember why my finna is so necessary. Finna comes from the southern phrase fixing too, like I come from my southern grandmothers. And finna is this word that reminds me about everything next. Even when I've been a broken boy, I know I'm fixing to get fixed. I'm finna be better. Every dream I have is a finna away from achievement. Each new love I uncover is a finna I unfold. Every challenge I choose to meet and not let defeat me is a finna I fight for. My hope is like my language, is like my people. It's black and it's brown and it's alive and it's laughing and it's growing and it's alive and it's learning and it's alive and it's fighting and it's alive and it's finna take on this wide world with a whole slang for optimism. So, so the deal is with that poem is that is a clear representation of why poetry works and why it matters. You're talking about maybe 200, 300 words. And you get a feeling for who this guy is and what he's made of and where he's come from. But you also have a connection that you're able to make maybe through one of the words or one of the scenes or one of the lines. And that's what makes poetry bring us all together. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Whether you agree with someone and their politics or who they are, you feel something. 
And you can't get a better way to become more human without feeling something. So kudos to you on that poem, man. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So did you say you were going last or? Yes, okay, I'm going last. Right. I'm the commentator. Okay. Uh, I'm done, so what, really whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll go. Um, I don't have many written down. So if you could help me out. If you say a word, that will, we can, we can be a little bit of a community here. And I will say some words and then we'll kind of go back and forth. Can you guys do that with, can we guys do this? Can we do this? Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> Okay, so you guys start with the word. What is next is third. It's first, second, and third. It's a silver bangled star shining from around my neck, a second place. It is not about the points. It is about the hang of the silver as it pulls my neck towards something more specific. The job and the love and the life is to hear is to use the ears, the ears on, on the side of the skull made of flesh and the ears inside of the heart that are carried by other hearts of sound that can reverberate through the written word and through the spoken word as they meld together. Constellation. And the dots of all of us, our eyes, small globes inside of our head looking at each other, from the distance, we also feel and hear inside of us constellations of our interior worlds that it only takes 300 words or less. And I think I'm at 27, 20, 30, I'm not good with math, 289, 290. The stars continue to move from the roof to our minds, to our hearts carried by each other. 300, thanks. <laughs> Thank So what happened there <laughs> is you have this whole improvisation taking place, which is what jazz is. It's riffing off of these things that matter to you. And poetry is about taking my personal and making it your business. And if I can do that, I've accomplished something. Hmm. Wow. I have a daughter, two daughters. One is nine, one is 27. When the 27-year-old was 15, she said she wanted to go out on a date. I said, maybe when you're 30. <laughs> My wife said, do the thing that you do when you're trying to understand the woes of the world. Write a poem. Ten reasons why fathers cry at night. <laughs> <coughs> One, because 15-year-olds don't like park swings or long walks anymore unless you're in the mall. Mm. Two, because holding her hand is forbidden and kisses are lethal. Three, because school was fine, her day was fine, and yes, she's fine, so why is she weeping? Four, because you want to help, but you can't read minds. Five, because she's in love, and that's cute, until you find his note asking her to prove it. Yikes. Six, because she didn't prove it. Seven, because next week she's in love again, y'all, and this time it's real. She says her heart is heavy. Eight, because she yearns to take long walks in the park with him. Nine, because you remember the myriad woes and wonders of spring desire. 
and 10 because with trepidation and thrill, you watch your teenage daughter who suddenly wants to swing all by herself. Yeah. Well, what a great place to start. Thank you for the idea to start here. And I, so I hear in, in the poem that you read, Finna, I'm Finna. Yeah, yeah. And the, the tension between that being a word and that not being a word. Yeah. And, and, you know, we talked about um, how you both have grown up surrounded by books. It's nothing is new and foreign about the page and writing as a form of expression but also growing up around um, hip-hop and jazz and oral culture as well, and things being passed this way, where some words are not words or right. words. What is, what's been your relationship as, as people have grown up surrounded by both of how you navigate the, the relationship between those two, between the word and the, and the, the spoken word and the page? Either. So... Um, I grew up in a place called Brooklyn, New York, and as a child, my parents would take me to poetry readings, and inevitably at these poetry readings, there was a couple things happening. The poetry readings didn't start until 10 o'clock <laughs> at night. The clubs were usually like these jazz clubs where it was a lot of smoke and a lot of questionable stuff going on. <laughs> and... And the poets were people like Sonia Sanchez, Haki Mahabudi, Amiri Baraka, and I'm this four and five year old kid in the back of the club listening to this, this poetry, listening to this jazz. And so I was able to sort of feel the energy and the rhythm of the music and the words and sort of see the power of it. And it was almost like going to church in a way. It was like going to church and you, you felt this, you felt something. And it was really powerful. And even as a child, I, I didn't, I couldn't articulate what that feeling was, but I, I could see how my parents were reacting and responding and I could feel a little some of it. And I think that over the years that it sort, certainly impacted how I try to, um, share my voice on the page and on the stage in that type of, uh, I guess, creating words, that sort of churchified, you know, environment, mm -hmm. call and response. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, like, gr I mean, growing up, I, I sort of spent most of my time in two places uh, when I wasn't in school it was either downstairs in the basement where my grandma like kept all her books and just sort of like digging through those books um, or on the basketball court right and I think that both places for me were like just such sites of like explosive language right mm -hmm. and so in many ways like the project of my life to this point has been um, has been like one of sort of listening to um, the language of, of both of those spaces and seeing where they intersect and seeing where they don't and just being kind of fascinated by it. Just like trying to understand, mm -hmm. understand something of that, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think about 
like when a when an MC says something that's really ridiculous, this face can come, yeah, stink, stink face. Like, and how does that? How does this experience something that is is said out loud? How do you translate that? These types of experiences onto the page. Like, I, like at the beginning of your book, the, through typography would be be one way. Are there other like other techniques that you guys have as far as? Um, cadences or any other ways that you use to to get these experiences that you feel in this churchified oral experience onto the page um are there any other yeah. techniques you guys yeah have? i mean i don't even know if i could articulate it really because my goal is i'm writing for children yeah. so my goal is to get children to want to read the books I don't want to get them to have to read the books. I want them to want to read the books. So that requires me to say, well, what am I doing to ensure that this child is going to be engaged in my story? So I got to go back to what I was like at age 11 and 12. What would I have wanted to have read? Certainly not my father's dissertations, which I had to read, but... I've got to figure out some different ways to play with the language, to use the language. And certainly I'm not the first, like I don't have to reinvent or invent anything because it's been done before. So if you read the poetry of Langston Hughes, you will get the blues, you will get the jazz, you will get the rhyme. Folks, I'm telling you, birthing is hard and dying is mean, so why not get yourself a little loving in between? All right. Like if you read, you know, E.E. Cummings, you will see like the playful way he puts the, the language on the page and meshing the yeah. words together and using the punctuation where typically we wouldn't expect it to be used and having words mm-hmm. slant. Like those are all kinds of things that I like to do that I've studied and I would have liked to have seen as opposed to Tuck Everlasting in eighth grade. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, I mean, I ain't judging Tuck Everlasting, y'all. But I'm saying I would have loved to have been given that book before Tuck Everlasting. Like, make me want to read the next book. And so I wrote this one poem in the crossover that is probably about 27 words. Tell me if you've ever seen a poem like this, because I borrowed it from someone. Yeah, yeah. It's a poem you can read four different ways. Ah, uh, yeah. So you can read it diagonal, or you can read it straight down in the left column, or you can read it in the right column, or you can read it backwards. I'm a genius. (laughs) But I just straight borrowed that from Rebecca Gonzalez, a poet in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It took me seven days to write that poem. I'm assuming other people have done this. And the last thing I'll say is, in the crossover, there are these vocabulary poems. I introduced these words like pulchritudinous that no fourth grader is going to know and calamity. And so the way I figured out that I was going to allow, let the children, the readers know what it meant was I wrote these poems. Um, they're called as in poems. Calamity. Um, an unexpected, undesirable, often physically injurious event. As in, if my brother JB hadn't been acting so silly, he would have cut one lock instead of five and avoided this calamity. As in, the huge ball patch on the side of my head is a calamity. 
as in after my game, my mom almost has a fit when she sees my hair. What a calamity, she says, shaking her head and telling my dad to take me to the barbershop on Saturday to have the rest of it cut off. So we got a couple things happening there. We got a vocabulary lesson. We got a dictionary poem. I straight stole that from Van Jordan. Yeah. Who yeah, did Magnolia. that? Magnolia. In, in Magnolia. Yeah. yeah. So it's nothing new. But, um, um, it's nothing new. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, similarly, right? So um, one of the things that, one of the parts of my poetic education that <clears throat> I don't really talk about and that people wouldn't know was when I was like in middle school, uh, two things. Number one, uh, one of the first places where I started writing raps regularly was actually in my English class. And it was because we would do these vocabulary tests and we had this uh, like long-term substitute named Mr. Muhammad. And Mr. Muhammad would give us extra credit if we like wrote a rap using our like vocab words. And I got very into I got like way too into it. Um, <laughs> I was like telling all my friends, like, all right, y'all, we finna all write these rap. And no, no one else was really that excited, but I was very hype. Um, so that was one thing. But then the other thing was um, around the same time, like I was, you know, becoming interested in hip hop and, and all these things and sort of looking for community. And so in that, I've like had the internet, right? And so I found um, these like hip hop forums online um, and one of the things that was happening in those is people would like have battles and post rhymes and do all this stuff, but it was all text, right? Um, and in some ways, that was one of the best poetic educations I could have had because what it made me do is, is I had to, it, it was the first time I ever really thought about the line, yeah. right? It was the first time I ever thought about like how does rhythm um, at the level of like sight, at the level of the page, get translated into something oral or how. Um, how it's kind of what you said, like how do I um, recreate or approximate this this experience that is largely an oral performative one into one that can perform on a page? Um, so those are like two deeply nerdy things about me. <laughs> that like yeah that that have shaped my thinking. So just there are forums. There's forums out there where people are yeah battling yeah, yeah moving back and forth. Yeah. So you mentioned so you play basketball yeah. as well. What, yeah. what position? Oh man, I was uh, a like a too short forward and a guard with uh, like no offensive skills, <laughs> um, you know. But it's it's all good. I was I was a very good defender. Yeah. I was a very good defender. The tenacity, lockdown. <laughs> also had good grades, and, which is important. So they they were like, we'll just put him on the team because he like raises the cumulative GPA. <laughs> so, so my question for you uh, was. Why basketball? Because after all of these no's that you mm-hmm. got from all of these different publishers saying, this is a book about basketball, like, no, thank you. No, that's all right. I don't want to read it. Why, why did you say yes to, to a, a book about basketball? Well, I mean, for a couple of reasons. One is you got to, as a writer, I believe that I got to be able to write what I like, what I want to write about. You know, I mean, that's the first rule is be authentic. Um, and I wanted to write about basketball. Why did I want to write about basketball? Well, most young people have some relationship with basketball. 
whether they play it or know someone who plays it, they know of it. And so I knew I wanted to tell a story about family and friendship and loss and love. And I knew I wanted sports to be the metaphor or the hook. And so it just made sense. And I love basketball, I can't play. Like I'm not that good. I mean, I could probably beat Nate. <laughs> no, I'm, not that, just I'm not that good. Unfair. Defensive game. Yeah, <laughs> it's, truly, it's truly a struggle. But I like basketball enough. Yeah, yeah. I know it. I played in eighth grade, so I know it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's why. Mm -hmm. mm. So, so both of you, like, so your work and your books, 25 now, a lot of them are um, directed towards young adults, um, middle schoolers, and, and you have worked in and with um, Louder Than a Bomb mm -hmm. as a participant and then coming back yeah. as, a, um, as a director. Yeah. I guess, um, well, well, first, the general question would be is, how, what's the connection between your, your, your personal work and this sense of community building and culture shaping? If you, like, you see all these young people who are being influenced by your work, um, can you just tell us a little bit about where personal expression meets view, uh, thinking about this, how the future is shaped? I think for me, um, you know, I was, I came into poetry and came into literature um, as, a, as a young person, right? Like I'm in many ways the like analog of the students that I work with now, like I'm you know, I'm their forebear in that, in that respect. And, and so for me, like, it, like, I don't really, I don't make a distinction between those two, between those things as projects, because I, I think um, my art making has always been connected to like spaces that are built to like empower young people, um, give young people, offer young people platforms and like, just offer young people space to be like creative and odd and, find other like creative, odd, interesting young people um, who are like interested in being kind of like civically engaged or artistically engaged. Um, so yeah, I don't know, like I don't, I don't know, in many ways for me, I don't, I don't, I just don't even know what my art making looks like divorced from those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. I was in Singapore talking to a group of students, seventh graders. And I talked about saying yes to life. And I read some poetry. And it was a great connection we were having. And I shared the story about getting rejected and, and all of this. And so when I got back to my hotel, um, teacher had sent me a note saying, go on your, check your Facebook page. So I checked my Facebook page and there was, the principal of the school in Singapore had posted a note that, um, that said, my son came home and this is the note he wrote. And so she took a picture of the note. And the note said, from a seventh grader, for my entire life, I have been a say no person. My mom says, clean, do you, clean your room. I say no. Hmm. She says, do your homework. I don't want to. I just generally don't like to participate hmm. in anything, in life. And he said, 
And then I listened to Kwame's speech today. I listened to all the struggles and the challenges he went through and how he said yes. I came right home and read the crossover. I think I want to be a say yes person. Right? I think writing for children in particular, like I've made that realization, I've come to that realization that this is activist work. We're not just about entertainment. It's intelligent entertainment. Like we really have in the palms of our hands the capacity to mold and shape these kids into something beautiful or not. Like it's in our hands as teachers and educators and parents and adults. And so I take that responsibility seriously. It doesn't mean I'm trying to be didactic and I want to teach and like, I want to create text that are going to illuminate and make possible the dreams of young people to imagine a better world. And I think it, I believe it's possible to do that. And I find that to be a very, you know, that's a, I find that to be, that's my way of being an activist. Mm-hmm. 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 Great. And yeah, thank you for that story too. And is there a story that you have of a specific young person who has kind of come up under you and that you have walked with that, that you say in your mind, yes, this is why I work with young people? Yeah, I mean, so many, I, I, but I think one, <laughs> one, one that sort of stands out probably because like, you know, he's like aggravating me in my phone right now. Um, mm-hmm. There's this kid named uh, Jalen who is uh, a young person in Chicago um, and he goes to my old high school and he sort of like um, has been, he came into our programming when he was in eighth grade. Um, so we sort of have that in common that we both came in the program super young and he has kind of been on fire for it since. And I, and I got a chance to work with him uh, sort of starting then up until now. And then this past year, um, he's a junior in high school now. So he's like looking at colleges and like thinking about what he wants to do. And he's become very infatuated with like, um, with Vanderbilt University, which is where I went to school, um, which is super, which is very f- funny. And I like talk to his, his like parents about it. And they're like, they're like, Nate, I, he just wants to be you, but he like won't say it. Um, and which like is, he shouldn't be me. He should be like far, he is far better already. And like, we'll continue that path unless something goes terribly wrong. So I'll keep it posted. But, um, but like I had an opportunity, I did a reading at Vanderbilt uh, this February and, and like, I like had a chance to take him and I was like, yo, just, you know, come down with me and like, um, and got to sort of, you know, walk him through the campus where I spent this really important time in my life and introduce him to like all of my old professors and, you know, my old provosts and like all these people. And it's just like, and like, there was something about that moment where I'm, where that makes me think about like, you know, for the students that will go through our programming and matriculate to college and, and even the ones that won't like, um, that there's a way that I think that some of the work that we do um, hopefully enables young people to begin to like see pathways for themselves mm-hmm. and then begin to like be able to like craft those um, craft those like futures that they that they want to live in and I'm always excited about like um, you know whatever part I can play in just helping facilitate that is, is like an honor mm. and so the deal is with that 
is this is why we were talking. I was like, you got to write for kids. <laughs> because books can do exactly what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, Books man. have the capacity to allow kids to find their pathways, you know? Yeah. And so the kids, all the kids need to have an opportunity to not only see themselves in the book and see what's possible, but they also need to be able to see the other kid mm-hmm. in the book and see what that kid, you know, is made of. Like all the kids have to have an opportunity to read all the books. This idea of segregating books. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do your thing. But <laughs> do with your thing. Yeah. yeah. I can go ahead. <laughs> so I have a question for you then. Is, uh, so as you transition from um, one Kwame going on a bus from 30 different stops with your books, these 25 books, or the, you know, and, and reaching um, the young people that you do right now, to now transitioning into uh, working with the imprint. So what does this, this transition look like for you? What is your vision for this? To move from just kind of like one person and connecting, but now also starting to work with and find um, other authors to connect with? That's a great question. So I think um, for the past hundred plus years of publishing, I kind of view publishing as having been this dinner party. And great food is served. They got drinks. But maybe like four of the chairs at the dinner party are empty. I just want to bring more people to the table to fill in those chairs. Like, I want to be in an audience and I want to see someone like Nate and be able to look past what generally is sort of our limited view of humanity. Now, I ain't judging us. I'm just saying this is how we've been raised. I want to be able to look on the stage and see Nate and say, wow, so this is, this is what it looks like for somebody to have an impact on a child's life where the child wants to become them. This is what... This is what the power of language and literature is. I want to be that guy to say, hey, you got a book? Holler at me. I want to bring more people to the table. Excellent. Thank you. And yes, for you, so you were, you were uh, a participant in Louder Than a Bomb. Yeah. Went away, did yeah. your thing. Yeah. <laughs> Came back. And now, can you tell us about your role there and, and your vision for that? Yeah, yeah. So I'm the director of national programs. Um, I say that because like <laughs> anyone who's ever worked in like nonprofits knows that like you have a title and then there's the job that you actually do, which is really like whatever needs to be done. And so sometimes I'm like the professional, like, you know, take her out of trash and like lock her up of the space after open mics or whatever. But, um, <clears throat> but in that role specifically, a lot of what I do is um, correspond and travel uh, with our partners across the country um, and beyond. So we have some partners in Canada and Trinidad and a couple other spots internationally. And I help those people sort of plan and imagine like what is possible in terms of um, like building capacity for 
um, for, for the kind of work that we do for, you know, for literary engagement and uh, performance work and, and all that. Like what is possible for that with young people where they, where they live, who are potential partners? Um, and then, and then I also like, you know, help like build curricular tools and, um, yeah, and, and all that. So you would mention you want to, you want kids to want to read, not just read dissertations, right? And this idea of access <laughs> is a part of it. And, um, like for, we, we had talked about, there could be a great open mic. Yeah. It's a fantastic place where when somebody invites somebody else to this open mic, the other person, and I've seen this before, is like, thank you yeah, yeah. for bringing me to this place. <clears throat> and, it open, and it gives them access to a whole new way of expressing themselves that they may not have known they could do. And that same thing happens with, with books, obviously. It <laughs> yeah. was with books. Um, but speaking with, from, with Louder Than a Bomb, you, like, what does it look like for, uh, to create spaces for there's access to those places? Because it could take, a, some people can't access those, yeah. those venues. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... Geographically. You know, yeah, it's making those venues robust and available, like where they already exist, but then also, you know, thinking, thinking broadly about how to do that, right? Like, I, th I think very much about, like... Um, about like how, like like how to sort of build a network within the context of say a city or a region or whatever, how to build kind of a network of like cultural sanctuaries where young people can come and be, and share and be together and um, and like build these sort of literary cultures, right? And often that can that can be a school, right? Like I've seen that happen really wonderful ways in schools where you know we have schools where I think that the culture in those spaces has begun to shift to where the kids who are a part of the spoken word club have like a similar sort of social cachet to as like the football team or the basketball team. And that's like, that's incredible. Like, I mean, and that, and that's also so unimaginable to me um, as like a young person who, when I, when I came into high school and I started playing basketball for like half the season, I like lied to my teammates when one of them asked me, like one of them was like, oh, I heard you write poems. I was like, I don't write no poems. That's crazy. <laughs> I, like, I can't even spell poetry. Um, and so to see that kind of, that kind of cultural <laughs> shift is incredible. And I think like it, imagining like what are the spaces where that can take place, be it a school or be it a community center or be it, um, you know, a storefront, be it, um, you know, a for-profit business, a, a restaurant, whatever, but just like thinking broadly about, um, yeah, how every, we, we can have sort of multiple sites of education, right? And they can be both formal and informal educational spaces. Yeah, I just love this network and this expanding of, of access yeah. through, these, through, these, through that network. And then also, as you talk about with the imprint, this, this expanding and opening of, of different authors and different people being able to, to access. Because the, the books are also a network. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so, it, it, and, and the access is much wider. Okay, whether you can afford to buy the book or not, there are these things called libraries. But your librarians have got to understand that all the kids deserve all the books. Yeah. You know what I mean by that? Let me be clearer. There was, I wrote a book about two frogs who were going to the beach. 
One frog is reading Moby Dick and can't put it down. And the other frog is upset because he wants to go surfing. <laughs> it's called Surf's Up. Their names are Bro and Dude. <laughs> right? So the book came out. It's a picture book. And I was doing a signing in Minneapolis. The librarians are in line. This librarian comes up and she says, hey, your book is really good. Um, I've got some black kids in my library and some white kids. And I need to know who I'm going to share the book with. So can you tell me what color the frogs are? <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> all right. And, so I, and people in line were like looking like, and so I said, look, your question is much more interesting than any answer I could ever give you. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. The books are already there. They will do the work. They will give the messages we need, whether it's Mo Willems or Jacqueline Woodson or Alice Walker or, or, or Naruto or Naomi Shihab Knight. It doesn't matter. The books will do the work for you, but you've got to be open-minded enough to understand that all the kids deserve all the books. Yeah. And so I'm excited to be able to now publish books that represent the kind of world we claim we want and the one that we live in. So yeah, I'm, I want to publish novels. I'm not just interested in poetry. I love poetry. I want to publish novels. I want to publish poetry. I want to publish nonfiction. I want to publish middle grade YA. I want to publish good books by good writers, right? That ultimately understand that we are in the business of helping children imagine a better world. Yeah. And so um, I have this thing that I believe that books are like amusement parks. And sometimes kids got to be able to choose the rides, right? And so I say this a lot in my speeches. And so my daughter was in the audience one time, and um, she was like, that was a cool quote. And I was like, thanks. And so we were on a flight to Dubai, and it was like, maybe 11 hours, and that's it. You're not going to be watching the screen the whole time. So you got to read for four hours, and then you can watch the screen for the rest of the time, which was really generous. That's seven hours of games and movies. Yeah. I was like, you got to read for four hours. So she immediately pulled out Raina Telgemeier's graphic novels, Smile and Sisters and Drama. And I was like, no, you can't read graphic novels. That's not going to work. You're not reading no comics. You got to read, you got to read Brown Girl Dreaming or, right? Literature. Or you got to, you got to read some literature. Exactly. <laughs> I need to see some words on the page. I want 30, 40,000 words minimum. <laughs> and so she looked at my wife and she said, daddy doesn't believe in the things he says at speeches. Oh, wow. I thought books were amusement parks. <laughs> And so I ended up letting her read the graphic novels. But uh, I have no idea why I shared that story, but yeah. Right. <laughs> it's a good one. So I think we have, some, we have a few minutes for some questions or comments from the audience. And I think there's a microphone right here. So do I, yep, we have a hand right back up there. Thank you. This is for Kwame. I appreciate so much you sharing your story. Obviously, a literary house experience that you had in words early on. 
you became a, I believe in myself person, it's obvious, and I, I believe it's shared by everyone on the platform there, but how did you know that God was saying yes to your vocational choice as well as you saying yes, especially when there were so many nays out there who could have, uh, you know, been speaking for God and forcing you to make a hard choice? The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. All right. Because of faith. That's really all you got. Hebrews 11. That's it. I mean, if you believe in yourself, and whether you believe in God or a higher power or the creator, or what, and you believe in yourself and you believe that there is someone that believes in you, that's it. Like, what's the point? If you are going to sort of falter at that belief or at that faith. Like, you really, it's really not faith. I'm not saying it's not hard, and there are times where you doubt and you worry and you cry and you're upset, but ultimately you got to come back to that thing that, that, that you believe in. Question for Nate. I just finished reading The Breakbeat Poets and was presenting on it a couple uh, uh, months ago in my grad program, and I was just wondering if you would talk about what the process of curating that collection was like, um, working with the two other guys and yeah. just finding kind of, okay, how do we, you know, for better or worse, how do we define this genre in a collection or those kinds of things? Yeah, it was crazy. Um, it was crazy. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I edited this anthology uh, with, uh, yeah, with two colleagues of mine, two homies of mine. Um, and the, it, I mean, number one, it just it took a long time. Like the like we probably started and set out with the idea around like 2009, and the book came out 2015. Um, so it was really like you know about a five year process, um, sort of from inception to execution. Um, it was really like in, in many ways kind of a trial of endurance, um, and it was especially for me like it was very much. Um, a process that I think I was flying the plane as I was building the plane, as I was learning how to build the plane and fly the plane. Um, because when we, again, like when we started this project, like I was an undergrad um, and, you know, had these ideas and had these notions and had like, had these sort of like fights with um, my sort of, my like main poetry professor um, that, it, that produced you know, some of, like, my, I think my just intellectual thought about the, about the stuff, but um, to get from there, you know, like, I think it was such an interesting process because as we were building that collection, like, I was growing a tremendous amount as a poet and as a person, um, you know, and also, like, in many ways, like, some, a lot of the people who make up that collection, especially the sort of the younger folks in the collection, are very much like, um, you know, they were sort of growing at, into, into themselves as the thing was coming together, right? So, you know, a, 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 I mean, a, probably at least a dozen poets in that book since, you know, since the book has come out have like released a first collection or sort of won a major award or been nominated for a major award or, or that kind of thing. So it's... Um, so yeah, it's, it, it was cool. It's very, it's very like strange now to see it as this sort of, um, because for so long in my life, it was this thing that was 
new and in fact so new that it didn't actually exist yet. And now it is like a, a past project um, and it's sort of becoming dated in a way that's very beautiful, but st I still find like deeply odd. Yeah. Nate, can yeah. you tell us what the book's about? Yeah, so <laughs> fair, good point. Right, so the book is called uh, The Breakbeat Poets, New American Poetry in the Age of Hip Hop. And it's um, a collection of about 80 poets um, ranging from folks uh, born in like the late, like in the 60s all the way up to like young people who are probably about college age now. Um, and I think what it kind of attempts to do is to sort of document uh, poetry and contemporary poetry um, and how that has been sort of shaped uh, as a conversation, as an art form by the genre and the culture of hip hop. Um, so it's cool, you know, there's, there's a ton of poems and then also a bunch of essays in there um, sort of about craft and yeah. I'd like to ask, since it was a concern about young women from publishers reading your basketball books or books that have basketball in it, great lover of basketball here, so I kind yeah. of odd at that statement, but now I'm curious. So how has it gone over with the young women? So thank you for that question. I think for the most part, publishers lack vision. <laughs> Sorry As, to any publishers in the room. <laughs> no, I said for the most part. <laughs> I, like all the people here have vision. <laughs> yeah. Or they wouldn't be here. So um, I think publishers, like I talked about the dining room table, the, di the dinner party. Mm -hmm. the di it's been the same dinner party for 100 years. Which It's not a judgment, it's just it is what it is. That's how we've been nurtured and developed, and it's sort of the same pipeline. And mm -hmm. I, it's time to sort of free it up, open it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, let it breathe, mold it, shape it into something sweet, something new. Um, and so... I think maybe that was just an excuse given because nobody could sort of wrap their hands around, you know, a basketball novel in verse for middle school kids with boys as the, the characters written by a six foot four black man. Maybe it was just some whatever they were dealing with and that was just one of the excuses because I felt and knew differently and the proof is sort of in the pudding that probably more girls have read the book than boys. Because girls are smarter than boys. <laughs> and true. generally, it takes a little bit longer. Like Gary talked about earlier, how he hadn't picked, you know, he hasn't really thinking about reading the crossover. But I think, you know, a lot of girls have read the book, including my nine-year-old. Both my older sisters are better basketball players than me. <laughs> Uh, and now I'm just reflecting on that. Right. It's kind of research for the girls, too. I mean, if it's a story about boys and the way they think and act, <laughs> yeah. know your enemy. It's yeah. fair. Yeah. I was wondering if you could just each give, like, one quick prompt help idea. Um, I work with young moms on the west side of Chicago. Oh. And part of their culture is no books in the home, no going to the library, and now... Um, it's very hard to get them to read to their own children, and they feel inadequate with words and books. But we, we try some literary things. But just, I want to just jot down some helpful things to bring back. 
To the parents or to the children? To the young moms. <coughs> so we're talking 24 and younger um, with an average reading ability of fourth and fifth grade. Well, I'll start first. Um, and I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think poetry is an answer. I don't know if it's the answer, but I think it may be an answer. From my 25 years of experience, I have seen that the white space is very unintimidating to ESL readers, to kids with dyslexia, to kids who aren't interested. Like all that white space says, okay, I can get through that page. I have some think time. I posit that poetry may be an answer. I think um, because it's dealing with these heavy, emotionally weighty sort of topics, but it's doing it in a way that you can actually get through it, that you are going to perhaps connect with the message. Maybe we can find a book of poems. And there's so many poets out here. Yeah. There's 80 poets in Nate's book alone. Yeah. And we miss people. I mean, there's just tons of poets. And, and so yeah. what the poem does, I believe, is A, it triggers a voice. Okay? B, you get through that poem or that page or that book or that 10 pages and you've built confidence. I think poetry can be a bridge. I think it can allow young people, can allow any of us to cross over. Oh, see what I did there? <laughs> Oh, it can allow us to cross over into an appreciation of language and literature. I like the, the, the product <laughs> placement was immaculate. Um, I think, I, yeah, I mean, I agree deeply. Um, I would also say um, that one of, the, one of the really interesting things about the moment we're in in contemporary poetry is that there's a number of poets who are excellent performers or readers of their own work. Um, and there's other visual, visual materials being produced around poetry, um, and those poems are like published and on the page. And so I would think about like, you know, finding YouTube videos of poets like Patricia Smith or Denez Smith or Jamila Woods or whomever, um, of them reading their work and then getting that work also on the page. If, if part of what is, what's, you're trying to make happen is them read to their children, almost like model that for them via that kind of engagement. Right. But I think like, you know, finding ways that they can be engaged in literature and finding literature that's like engaging for them. Um, yeah, and, and poetry is a really good way to do that. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. Thank you. And thank, thank you. you for your work. Thank you. you guys are doing this. All right, thank you. Thank you guys. Huge thanks to Kwame Alexander, Nate Marshall, and Billy Mark. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the center and its signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.calvin.edu and festival.calvin.edu, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us a review to help others find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more from the Festival Archives.